Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the soap opera continues. Patrick Brown trying to appeal the decision by the Federal Conservative Party to disqualify him from the leadership race. What are the next steps? Well, we'll talk about that. Natural gas is now the hottest commodity in the world. Who benefits and who doesn't? And a private group is trying to bring the 2030 Commonwealth Games to Hamilton. They've officially submitted their proposal to the federal and provincial governments. Rich Gelder is the president of the Hamilton Olympic Club and a former candidate for Hamilton City Council. He will join us on the program to talk about all of that. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Uh, follow the uh, soap opera, which is the conservative uh, leadership race, of course. Yesterday, uh, Patrick Brown got booted out of the race uh, for allegations about, uh, well, they're not quite sure what the allegations are. It's got something to do with somebody getting paid, etc. It's very murky right now. But uh, the latest is that uh, Patrick Brown is going to try to appeal that decision by the federal conservative party. Emily Javesky has some details. A notice of appeal has been sent to the Conservative Party's chief returning officer. Patrick Brown is accusing the party of mishandling the matter to try and stack the odds in favor of his main rival, Pierre Poiliev. At the heart of the issue are allegations that the party says appear to violate federal election financing law, but it's declined to provide further details. The party's president says the allegation came from within Brown's campaign, but Brown says the party didn't provide the details he requested to mount a proper response. Emily Javesky, The Canadian Press. Well, this is a twist that I don't think a whole lot of people expected to see. Let's uh, bring Muhammad Ali into the conversation. Muhammad, of course, is a senior consultant with Crestview Strategies. Uh, Muhammad, good to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Did you see? I'm going to ask you if you saw it coming, because I don't think anybody saw this coming. Uh, but we know there's always a little bit of political chicanery during leadership races, and uh, and and especially in a situation like this, where clearly Patrick Brown and Pierre Polyev don't like each other. Uh, to go to this extent, if in fact all these allegations are true uh, about corruption within the party, and this is a done deal and it was a setup, uh, let's, uh, give me the, your your overall view of what you've heard over the last thirty six hours or so, because this is this is not good news for a conservative party that's trying to show Canadians that they're a government in waiting. I think you said it best, Bill. It's a soap opera right now, and I, I don't think I've ever seen a leadership race at a federal or provincial level be as chaotic. Uh, all over the place, divisive, toxic, everything you could talk, possibly name as uh, short of being calm, stable, and, and uh, structured of a leadership race. And, you know, to, to some, they're not surprised by the Patrick Brown allegations or, or of being, uh, you know, uh, breaking the rules. Uh, <clears throat> you know, he's accused of that in the Ontario side before. Um, he has faced allegations at the city council uh, as mayor. So I think like there is there's a bit of history there for him. So there's a lot of you know su- surprise, not surprise situation, but also you know to be very blatant and, and oversight. Like I, it doesn't it's not very clear to me now. You know to to disqualify the person who has the second most signed up candidates uh, is not easy to do, uh, and I and, and I don't envy uh, the leadership committee that has to kind of make that decision uh, to, to vote him up because knowing all of this is going to come out. It's the number one story, um, a national headline. Uh, and now you have someone who has uh, a taste for fighting and, and litigating back uh, against anyone who's wronged him and Patrick Brown. So it's going to be a much a messier fight uh, for the next few days. 
the, the word that kept getting bandied around here, and we, we've both used it a couple of times already this morning, is allegations. Uh, and, and they say that, okay, they booted him up because of allegations. Nobody has yet indicated that they have any proof of these, or that any of this has been verified. So is, is this a situation where this guy is basically being found guilty until he can be proven innocent? I mean, this is, uh, I don't know, this is the, the challenge. Uh, it's they're going to provide this information to Elections Canada for violating the, the Elections Act uh, in, a, in a political party's leadership race. Uh, they have there's apparently text messages from uh, an individual within the, the Brown camp that uh, alleged or said that there this is going on, that, that a member of or members of the campaign team is being paid by an outside corporation, which violates the rules. So uh, if this is, I mean, until there's some clarity, because even the, uh, the Conservative Party's uh, statement on, or the Leadership Committee's statement on what they're, why they're kicking him out was just on financial irregularities, but it, like it wasn't even clear exactly what and how much and who and what was going, like it, it was a very broad statement with, a, with very slight detail. Uh, and that's just allowing more questions to be raised by by those who were the detractors of this, uh, you know, it, so, uh, you know, it's hard to say what, what's really going on uh, on the inside until like some of that more transparency comes out, more the information comes out uh, because he's going to fight this tooth and nail. And now he's hired one of the most high profile lawyers in Canada to defend yeah. him uh, and, and appeal this decision. I don't know how he's going to appeal it because I don't know what the mechanisms really look like within a leadership race because it's unprecedented really in a, in a, in a, in a way. Yeah, Maria Hannon, uh, who of course uh, has won some very high-profile cases over the last number of years, uh, apparently is going to be representing Patrick Brown in this uh, this endeavor. Uh, her statement, I'll just paraphrase it here, is essentially says Patrick Brown has done nothing wrong, uh, and there's no indication that he has, uh, which kind of indicates that the, the tack they may be taking here is that there might have been something going on somewhere in, within that organization, but he knew nothing about it. I, I'm kind of getting that's the, the way they're going to be kind of leaning on this. Uh, I, I think a lot of people are just surprised that, you know, it, it led to this, uh, you know, instead of simply saying, look, you know, we're going to have to investigate this, and, and but we're not going to fire you yet. But they went right ahead and fired him. Uh, and as you say, he had the second most memberships. Uh, he still thinks he's going to win this thing. Uh, I give him credit for, you know, the spunk he's got here. But you, you're right, Muhammad. I mean, this, Brown has been surrounded by controversy most of his political career, hasn't he? Yeah, it's an entire career, I think, at this point. And so... Uh, how, and I agree with you, even how your take is on, on the Mary Hannon and the, the messaging that they're using, because there's like, okay, there is text messages, there is something there, there was something done uh, that violated the rules. Well, does, did, the, did, the, did the candidate know? And I think that's where it comes into. But at the end of the day, you are the candidate, you are the leader of your campaign. Uh, there is some onus or a lot of onus and responsibility on the leader because that's what leadership is. And so if there was inappropriate uh, or, or illegal activity taking place that you know, you're know you cognizant of, or maybe you endorsed it or whatever it may be, uh, it's it's on you uh, rather than the day. And, and in all fairness to any other candidates, it, we all talk about uh, leadership is important and, and one has to take the ownership on uh, mistakes made by those who are working with you or working under you. Uh, and, and this isn't a classic example of him sort of trying to rid himself of, of responsibility, which is not surprising. Uh, but I think importantly here is they, they need 
the, the party is going to have to kind of manage the situation because there is 150,000 voters uh, within this leadership race that are now up for grabs, so to speak. Uh, you know, they've touted that this is going to be a, a, a big turnout, uh, one of the biggest turnouts ever in party history. Uh, but what does what happens with 150,000 voters who who sign up because of Patrick Brown? There will be a percentage of them that don't show up, but there will be a percentage that are interested to vote uh, in some respect. And who keeps them around? Uh, and that's the kind of question that the party also needs to be in terms of maintaining some of its semblance with the voters. A couple of things about this that I, uh, I came to light yesterday that was, uh, we should remember this aspect of, and that's the alleged investigation. In other words, you know, Patrick Brown says, I want to know details. We want to know details. Uh, but we may never get all those because, uh, you know, we look at people like Patrick Brown and Pierre Polyev and Jean Charest, they're well, they're politicians, so this is all public news. You know, they have a responsibility and a duty to, to be transparent. The Conservative Party, it doesn't. It's a private club. You join the party, uh, and, you know, some of those members will get elected to elected office. That's fine. Uh, but they don't have any obligation. There's not going to be any, you know, uh, official investigation into this, unless, of course, Elections Canada wants to do something about this. But there, there's no duty on the part of the Conservative Party to be forthcoming about anything here, really, is there? Not entirely. I mean, there is a degree of a transparency needed just because there is uh, yeah. <coughs> members uh, who paid their dues <laughs> To the party, so there is a bit of, uh, of of transparency needed. This is this is an issue the party faced when, if you remember, Andrew Shear, who famously was secretly got approved to expense his children's private school yeah. education to the Conservative Party, uh, was paying off all kinds of luxurious uh, expenses to the Conservative Party. So uh, it, the party has an issue on terms of accountability and transparency. Then they need to do something about it. And this is an opportunity for them to come out and be very clear of what's going on. Because I think, you know, there are people who rightly probably believe in Patrick Brown is 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 guilty of this uh, allegation. And mm -hmm. given that his history and such, but don't let the shroud of doubt uh, take away from that. Because there are people on that leadership community that are trying to do a good job, trying to ensure whoever you know, the new leader is, it's done right. Uh, but is there a, someone who has, uh, you know, there has been allegations of, of this being a coronation for Pierre Polliver by the party. Uh, are people within it just looking at like, hey, Pierre's going to be our, our champion, so let's just make it as easy as possible. Was there like concern? Like, I mean, once it's out there and now doubt starts to seep in, uh, it, it becomes a problem. And they need to retain and build that trust with members and the new members to ensure that, hey, we, what we did was clear, transparent. Uh, ethical, and we did this in the in the favor of the party and the leadership race uh, against someone who was unethical, has a history, and broke the rules. So the the party has a real uh, pivotal moment right now to do what do the right thing. Yeah, I'm not suggesting that that Brown's allegations about corruption are legitimate. I mean, that's that's to be determined. But I can see from that standpoint, Mohammed, you could make an argument for it because Brown was a different kind of candidate. I mean, he supports LGBTQ rights. He uh, he he denounces the you know the the hardcore right wingers and uh, some of the things that are going on, and that's going to make a lot of people in that party uncomfortable. Uh, and you know, do we really want a guy like that as our leader? They, as opposed to, well, you know. 
obviously Polyev, who seems to be the front runner now, but even Andrew Shear and Aaron O'Toole indicate that they, they, they're comfortable being hard right, and uh, Patrick Brown's not a hard right candidate. So I, And I don't know if that's going to add fuel to the fire, but uh, just another reason why I guess there has to be some transparency here. But what does this do to the race now? Polyev uh, is the front runner. We know that. Uh, Brown seemed to be the biggest threat right now. I mean, Jean Charest is still there. Uh, but does Polyev just glide to the finish line now? It's hard to see anyone but Pierre Polyver winning at this point. Uh, it, it, I think the Patrick Brown uh, leadership uh, bid was the closest to uh, beating um, Pierre at this uh, at this juncture. But you know, it's it's really now going to come down to one hundred fifty thousand members are going to have to choose whether who they vote for or not because if they vote for Patrick Brown, the ballot is disqualified, or at least that round, whichever they're listing him at, is the first one he's delisted uh, out of and they count the other ones. But, you know, it's very hard now to see anyone with a legitimate shot at beating Pierre. Short of, of there has been some sort of oversaturation of, of Pierre's uh, members signed up in, like, big rule ridings in Canada that you are only, like, one, maybe two ridings as opposed to some of the urban centers, which is where Patrick Brown uh, would have won and dominated a lot more. Uh, if if most of these voters go to Jean Charest, like, I don't know what Jean Charest, no one knows what Jean Charest's total, except for Jean Charest, what the total mm-hmm. uh, membership signups he has. So if, if he had, say, 80,000, and then he'd somehow convince all 150,000 of uh, Patrick Brown members to come vote for him, he's got... You know, north of two hundred twenty thousand uh, members to to work with. That's that's big. If you're coming up mm-hmm. to three hundred thousand for, uh, for for Pierre Bulwer, so you know it really comes down now. They're going to have to fight for these uh, members. Um, they're going to be fighting amongst each other as well for their members. If you know, are people feeling disenfranchised in different camps? Uh, you know, there's Leslie Lewis is out there who is a so- social conservative who has that base uh, that that they, she holds on to. So, you know, but at the end of the day, I think <clears throat> if one has to be a betting man here, uh, Pierre Polliver is probably your next leader of the Conservative Party at this point, given where we're at with this disqualification of Patrick Brown. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to see. And, and as you say, uh, aside from Brown himself, who's at the center of this, uh, nobody else is talking much. Uh, Charest doesn't want to make any comments until he says they gets the facts. Well, we're all in that boat. We'd like to get the facts. Uh, and Paul, have uh, if. Well, it's interesting about Polyev and his attitude. Uh, they're gathering, I guess, in Calgary this weekend for uh, kind of a leadership debate. And he's taking a pass on that. He's he's, uh, he's going to Calgary. He's going to somebody's barbecue party. He's not going to involve himself in the debate. So he kind of gives us the message here that he figures, you know, I- I'm ahead. Why should I go in there and, and, and take a beating or say something that's going to come back against me? So, you know, I'm just going to be Teflon at this stage and just kind of wait until the, the vote happens. So uh, we don't know. And, of course, as you say, with uh, Marie Hennon uh, def- uh, defending and representing Patrick Brown right now, uh, it's pretty safe bet that this is not over, not by a long shot. Mohammed, always great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for this. Thanks for having me, Bill. Take care. Muhammad Ali, who is a senior consultant at uh, Crestview Strategies, keeping an eye on uh, the politics of this. And uh, we'll see just officially now if we're going to start to get some information, if, in fact, Elections Canada is going to get involved in this, and because uh, there could well be some legal ramifications to this. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We know over the years uh, that a number of European nations have become dependent, to a certain extent anyway, on Russia for energy. 
pipelines uh, going from Russia to various countries uh, have been in place for some time. And uh, there's always been some concern, I know, among G7. And uh, and one of the main issues is natural gas. I know we've talked about, you know, what's going on at our pumps, and that's oil that we're talking about there. But European Commission Chief Ursula van der Leyen says it's necessary to make emergency plans now to end the gas reliance from Russia in the wake of the Kremlin's war in Ukraine. She's speaking to members of the 27-nation union in Strasbourg. Uh, she said the blocks need to be ready right now for some shock disruptions from Moscow. We also need to prepare now for further disruption of gas supply and even a complete cut-up of, of Russian gas supply. So that's the situation right now, and, and the numbers seem to indicate that there has been a, a, a switch here. Uh, natural gas, they say, is now the hottest commodity in the world right now. It's a key driver of global inflation. Uh, so what happens, and what are the implications of that? I want to bring Ian Lee into the conversation. Ian, of course, is an associate professor at the Sprott School of Business in uh, Carleton University. Ian, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning. Uh, my pleasure for joining you. Let me, let me talk to you about, about natural gas. We've had a, a lot of discussion and maybe, I guess, a lot of focus on oil, of course, production, because that has a yeah. direct impact on, on you know the stuff we put in our cars, combustion engines. It's summertime, so we don't think a whole lot about natural gas. You know, well, yeah, that'll heat our home, but that's not until November. What's going on with the market right now that there seems to be such discussion among, uh, well, the G7 leaders, for instance, last uh, couple of weeks, uh, the prime minister and a number of other uh, world leaders were talking about natural gas and how they can get it over to Europe. Uh, you're absolutely right, uh, Bill. The um, uh, natural gas has historically been, the, the when I say the poor cousin, that's maybe a bit strong to put it that way <laughs> of oil. But um uh, let me just deal, start with some facts. Uh, there's sure. one world price for oil. We all know that. It's called WTI or Brent. If people are wondering why there's two different classes for oil, it's be, it's because there are two different qualities of oil. I won't get more into the weeds than that, but they're basically oil. WTI, West Texas Intermediate Oil, is one class of oil with a certain amount of sulfur, and Brent is another class of oil with a certain amount of sulfur. There's actually different classes of oil. And it just is how clean the oil is and how much refining it needs to become turned into gasoline and diesel and so forth. But the point is, it's a world price within that class called WTI or Brent is one price in the world. Natural gas has never had a, quote, world price. And there's a North American price called the Henry Hub because the price is settled at Henry Hub, Oklahoma, small little podunk town in Oklahoma. And uh, there's a separate price for Asia, a separate price for Europe. And that's because it's, it's more, I don't want to say it's impossible. Of course it's not, but it's more difficult. It's more complicated to ship LNG. You can liquefy natural gas by cooling it and putting it into huge you know, tanks and then putting it onto ships. But the, the ability to transport natural gas called liquefied natural gas when you're shipping it other than pipelines. If you're going across an ocean, you can't do a pipeline. Now, if you're shipping from Russia to Europe, yes, you can ship it by a pipeline. But when it's the moment you go across the ocean to Asia or to Europe, you need LNG. And there's just not a lot of LNG terminals in the world. And so because historically oil was used much more so than natural gas. However, now very quickly, Bill, to answer your question, the reason that it is, um, uh, I think, 
in my view, why it's becoming so uh, competitive, if you will, and, and so fought over, is that there are many alternatives to Russian oil. I mean, there's uh, Kuwait oil and United Arab Emirates oil and Saudi Arabian oil, American oil, Canadian oil, uh, Venezuelan, Iranian. Like, there's a lot of oil sources around the world. And, and so I'm not saying that it's all being immediately accessible because of an imbalance of supply and demand, but it's there. LNG gas, which is becoming more and more valuable because people use it around the world, certainly in, in Europe and North America, we use it for heating, whether it's buildings or homes. My house is heated by natural gas. All the buildings in the uh, universities that, that I know of in Canada and the schools are heated with natural gas, uh, the hospitals. Um, and uh, so my point is it's really, really essential um, especially in a cold climate. And, and Europe is much more dependent on Russian natural gas than it is on Russian oil because they, there are alternatives they can get uh, uh, for Russian oil. So it's become um, uh, really, really important. It's the, what they're calling the new oil. And one more quick point, Bill, before I forget this point. Natural gas, which the environmentalists don't, they hate it when I talk about this because I get emails. Um, natural gas is the cleanest of all the fossil fuels. Think of it as a hierarchy. Oil is the filthiest of the dirtiest of the filthy of all fossil fuel. It produces enormous amounts of GHG, uh, coal does. Oil is in between. And the cleanest is natural gas. So I've been arguing, and Bill Gates has argued, and many others have argued, that natural gas should be our bridge fuel to the middle of the century or beyond when we switch to alternatives because natural gas is plentiful at least in certain parts of the world and it is very very clean interesting yeah because there was a big uh, move i remember years ago about natural gas vehicles and they they seem to have moved away obviously electricity seems to be the the, the model of choice for the future uh but it's accessible uh but as you say ian it, it's it, you have to be you know, very, very strategic, I guess, in where you're going to get it, which uh, leads me back to what I was mentioning just as you were joining us here uh, about the, the, the long walk that the prime minister had with the German chancellor uh, at the G7 meeting, uh, essentially talking yes. about a prospective deal uh, to get some of that stuff over to Germany. That's got to be, as you say, it's not complicated, but it's got to be very expensive, I think, to do that sort of thing. But I guess they're willing to pay that sort of price just to, t to, to decrease the, the, uh, the reliance on Russian stuff. You're right. Now, let me throw in another wrinkle into this. Um, you just you don't just sort of send a pipeline down to the East Coast and then say, OK, stick it in, uh, just liquefy it and pop it into the tanker and giant LNG tanks. Um, you need a very there's only a handful of places that can actually liquefy the natural gas from natural gas is a gas. <laughs> That's why we call it natural gas. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's an air. <laughs> it's, 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 it's not a physical, tangible uh, liquid. You have to build um, an enormous plant like they have in Texas at Freeport uh, to liquefy it. And it's very complex. It's very expensive to build one of these things. And you just don't build it in three months or six months. It's going to take years. And the point I wanted to bring up is you can bet. I mean, I'm willing to bet everything I own in this world, which isn't a lot. All I own is a house. I'm willing to bet that every major Ingo, environmental NGO are ramping up plans to go to court uh, to stop any attempt to build any LNG terminal in Canada or in the U.S. Uh, to prevent the increased reliance on natural gas. The reason why I believe, and I'm, for, forgive me now, I'm speculating. I don't, I'm not using, quote, data because I'm a heavy user of data. 
The reason why I think that they're going after natural gas and natural gas pipelines is because they understand that the argument against coal is is a slam dunk. Everyone agrees coal is filthy dirty. Everyone agrees. Even coal companies agree. Right? And so they don't have to convince public opinion. But I think that the environmental groups realize that it's a much, much harder argument to make against natural gas because it's much cleaner. It's my, it's very plentiful. There's a large infrastructure in place in Europe, uh, uh, natural gas pipelines, and of course in Canada, the United States. And there's a, an increasing demand for it uh, because it is so useful for heating schools and buildings and, and so forth. So they are uh, there. There's been some decisions just very recently where the OEB, the Ontario Energy Board, has denied Enbridge to uh, rebuild an existing natural gas pipeline that's the end of its life cycle. Um, and and I, I think that they've come to this conclusion because of intense lobbying by the Engos uh, because they uh, they realize that uh, that LNG and natural gas are much more, shall we say, palatable in the court of public opinion. And look, here are the Germans and the Europeans saying we desperately want to switch to natural gas. And and so they realize that this is their from their perspective, their enemy. And they that's why they're go I believe they're going to go to court and they're going to pull everything out uh, to to go to court to stop any LNG terminal or LNG liquefaction plants anywhere in Canada or U.S. or for that matter, probably in Europe. Well, because there was some speculation. You're, you're absolutely right. There aren't very many of these facilities. Uh, apparently, there's an old facility in the uh, in the East Coast, in the Maritimes, uh, that they think they might be able to retrofit. Because I, I think the, the estimate I saw to build a brand new one from scratch is, is about 10 years. And, and that's if nobody yes. complains, by the way. And, and you know that's not yes. going to happen. There's going to be a, a big lineup at the, you know, at the courthouse when this happens. So it looks like you know there's a possible deal here. It looks like we've got a, a product that Europe is really, really in need of right now but it's going to take a lot of effort to get it over to the east coast and then retrofit this thing so this isn't going to happen anytime soon i would think then i'm a bill i am very skeptical it will happen in canada um because of the the bills that were passed into law uh just before the last election the one is called the the it was the acronym was the no pipelines bill that's not the technical name of the bill but that's what jason kenny called it and it made it very 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 difficult to build pipelines um, and so the the whole structure called the the legal framework in Canada is uh, is stacked against pipelines. So and, and then the government itself is very very clearly opposed to uh, oil and natural gas users. They want to decarbonize completely. So I'm very skeptical that that will ever be developed in Canada. The Americans being far more pragmatic than we are. We're, uh, our government is very ideological on this, notwithstanding the. You know, the, the, the war in Ukraine and notwithstanding that the Germans are ramping up use of coal and China is ramping up use of coal and so is Japan, they would rather prevent new sources of LNG, which is much, much cleaner than coal, which is a substitute for coal. And this has been my number one criticism of environmental groups. If they really cared about the environment, they would say, look, we want to shift and get the world off coal because it's the filthiest of the dirtiest of the filthy by, by a mile, by light years. And they should be supporting uh, 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 gas, natural gas, as a bridge fuel because it's so much cleaner than coal. But they don't. They are resolutely opposed. They're also resolutely opposed to nuclear. So what does that do to countries like China and, for that matter, Germany as we speak? This was on the CBC News last night, and it's in the financial press. Germany is ramping up its use of coal, which is the dirtiest of all the fuels because they're blocking a cleaner fuel 
called natural gas. I think the Americans, because they're more pragmatic, I think that they will. They're ramping up already. Their exports are now rivaling the Middle East of liquefied natural gas. So they're going to step up to the plate. They're going to seize the opportunities. I don't believe that we will in Canada. Which could be a huge economic mistake, I guess. And uh, it's fine. I know we're just about out of time, but it's, this is one of the things that people find so confusing, though, Ian. You've got the, uh, the legislation that you just talked about from the federal government. I know a lot of environmentally conscious people are saying, yeah, good move. That has to. And then you've got the Canadian government fighting the state of Michigan over pipelines, you know, to, to let this yes. thing happen. Uh, it's, it's, it's making a lot of people's heads spin right now. And, and I, we don't know. I mean, the fact that the prime minister met with the German chancellor and talked about this, uh, and now there's some stories that the chancellor may actually come over here to try to sign a deal. Uh, boy, there's a lot of work to do before they get that done. Ian, as always, thank you so much for this. Always appreciate your time. Have a great weekend. Uh, my pleasure, Bill. Thanks very much. Ian Lee from uh, Carleton University, of course. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Interesting meeting. Hamilton City Council uh, entertained a number of delegations uh, to do with the uh, the proposed bid uh, for the uh, Commonwealth Games, the 2030 Commonwealth Games. Uh, Councillors uh, have agreed to advocate for support from uh, upper levels of government, uh, but an updated memorandum of understanding still does not commit the city to any infrastructure or capital investments. As we mentioned, a number of people made presentations, including Sport Hamilton's Helen Downey, who had this to say. It is an opportunity to significantly enhance sport development and physical activity programs for all in Hamilton with world-class, year-round, from grassroots to competitive levels for both training and competition, as well as recreation. Uh, a number of other people made presentations and, and were involved in the meeting as well, including our next guest. Rich Gelder is the uh, president of the Hamilton Olympic Club. He's also a former candidate for Hamilton City Council uh, and a very much uh, an advocate for uh, the improvements in the city, including uh, the, the bid for the games. Uh, Rich, glad you could jump in with us today. Thanks so much for the time. Morning, Bill. Thanks was, for having uh, me. What was your impression of the meeting as, as you watched it and, and took part in it the other day? Well, what I saw was a bunch of really great community leaders coming together to make something uh, extremely positive happen for the city, which would be a successful bid for the Commonwealth Games. Uh, it's been 100 years, and there's no better place for these games to happen than where they started, right here at home in Hamilton. I was very encouraged by the, uh, the diversity of perspectives that were brought to the council table um, at the, uh, the General Issues Committee and excited to be working with my partners like Helen, like you, you just quoted, yeah. as well as the uh, the bid people, PJ Mercanti et al. And um, we're hoping to make something really great happen, particularly for track and field in the city. Yeah, let's, let's back up for a second and talk about that. Uh, for m those who may not know, uh, the, the reason for the bid for 2030 is because uh, these Commonwealth Games originated, the first ones actually were in Hamilton, Ontario back in, uh, well, 1931, but they were called the British Empire Games then. Uh, and uh, the stadium that the Tiger Cats played in for so many years, Iverwind Stadium, was actually Civic Stadium before that, was built for that. Uh, the Jimmy Thompson Swimming Pool, just a block away from there, was built for those games. Uh, those are two pieces of the legacy anyway. Uh, but that, those councils had a vision. Uh, and that's even going back, you know, to the to the 1920s and th to say, yeah, you know what, this is a big thing and this could help us. And we're hoping that this council has that, that same vision right now. But what was the reaction? How did you feel the council responded to the presentations, Rich? Well, I think they're um, they're weighing a lot of things. Uh, we understand that the, the fiscal pressures that the city is under, which is why I, I think that the bid committee is um, 
doing the right thing by making this largely a private sector bid, as well as relying on senior levels of government. And what I am hoping for is that many of these um, infrastructure improvements that we're looking for, specifically in athletics, um, are with the help of the uh, uh, senior levels of government, because frankly, it's Hamilton's turn. Uh, we've seen the uh, the commitment that's been made to games in the past, whether it was the 76 Olympics or the 88 Winter Olympics or the uh, 2015 Pan Am Games, which Hamilton was supposed to have been a beneficiary of. I would argue that we were not, at least not to the extent that we were promised. Uh, and of, of course, 2010 Vancouver. Frankly, it's Hamilton's turn to be the recipient of some of this um, assistance from senior levels of government so that we can see the types of sport infrastructure improvement that other cities have been enjoying. Yeah, I uh, I remember covering the 2015 Pan Am bid, uh, and, and you're right. I mean, it, I, on paper, it looked like it was a wonderful idea, and Hamilton was going to benefit, uh, I, I thought, immensely. Uh, and, and, you know, one by one, they kind of paired some of that stuff off and gave it away to other places, including, uh, you know, the cycling velodrome. And, but I'll, I'll, I'm going to tell you, because and, and, I know you covered it extensively as you were watching it, uh, part of the reason for that, though, was that Hamilton City Council dragged their feet on an awful lot of this stuff, uh, and they just didn't seem to understand the the, the upside of this. And and as a result, you know, the, the committee just simply said, "Look, we got to move on." And they almost lost the stadium because of that too, uh, save for you know the work of uh, well, Sophia Aginalides, who was the minister from the Hamilton area at the time, and the provincial government basically got them all in one room and said, uh, "We're not leaving here until we get a decision." And and they did. The, the politics are a big part of this. I get that. Uh, but you'd like to think that these guys can see past that. I mean, there's never going to be a time, Rich, as you know, where the city's going to say, yeah, we're, we're rife with money. we got money coming out of our ears here. Sure, we can do this. There are always going to be challenges, but it's a matter of prioritizing and saying, can we do this? And, and it's the job of city council to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. It, it certainly is, but I, I don't want to say anything about what happened um, with the 2015. That's all water under the bridge. But... Um, our goal in, in going before General Issues Committee and, and being very public in our support for Hamilton 2030 is to let City Council know that there is significant community support for this. That um, at the end of this, we are expecting some um, infrastructure improvements that uh, younger athletes will benefit from. Our own programming right now is bursting at the seams uh, in the Hamilton Olympic Club. Coming out of this pandemic, uh, we are having to say no to kids because of shortages of space and, and and some coaching resources. And when the weather gets a bit colder, we literally go out of town to train. And this is something that um, we are trying to change. One of the things that we are pushing for as an athletics community is the inclusion of, of an indoor field house. And this is a type of thing that's been built for other um, games and um, that the running of an international track and field competition will require a warm-up track. Uh, we're not expecting a new 400-meter track because I believe the plan right now or the vision is to have some imp improvements made to our existing facility at the Ray Lewis Track and Field Center at Mohawk Sports Park. But what we're looking to see out of this is, is uh, uh, possibly an a, a indoor field house with a 200-meter competition-ready track. And uh, this is kind of what our support is contingent upon as, as a community. And we have been pressing the, not only um, council but also the bid committee that you know, look, we are happy to support these games. Um, we are arguably co-founders of these games because our founder and first president was M.M. Robinson. That was he who ah. brought the game to Hamilton in 1930. Yeah. He was the founder of Hamilton Olympic Club, my predecessor, way back almost 100 years ago. And um, 
So we are looking that, uh, for track and field to benefit significantly from this bid, and that's why we're at the table um, with full enthusiastic support. Well, and, you know, when we look at exactly what's being built, or we can talk about that or we get into greater detail, uh, it's, it's for youth sports as well. There's a legacy element to this. Uh, but as you've mentioned, other communities have benefited from this. You mentioned the 88 Calgary Olympics, for instance, Winter Olympics. Uh, a number of the infrastructure pieces that were actually constructed for that are still being used as training facilities for national teams. Uh, and, and that's an economic uh, driver for, for that community. And, you know, Hamilton needs something like that as well. Um, it, well, you know, Tim Hortons Field is a classic example of that, isn't it, Rich? I mean, it was built for those Pan Am games. Uh, it, it's not just the home of the Tiger Cats. We've had concerts there. We've had so many other events there. Uh, it, the community benefits from these sorts of things. So so it's not just, well, this is a place where they you know can practice track and field. There's there's a legacy element to this, too, and, and I think that has to be included. But let, uh, let's swing back, if you could, to uh, to the private sector involvement in this, uh, because we've had P.J. Mercati and Lou Forporti, who's, of course, involved in, in the bid and uh, on the show many times. And they understand the, the financial pressures that every city is under these days, uh, which is why they're really trying to, to do this through the private sector. Uh, and, and they seem to be doing well. I mean, there's a number of heavy hitters. You know the names. I know the names of people that have already made huge contributions to this community. They've grown businesses here. They're employing people here. And they're behind this bid. So they seem to see the, the opportunity here, too. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we embrace that private sector involvement. In fact, uh, at the end of these games, I hope that there are several corporate names on whatever infrastructure is left behind because we see that the, that's how these facilities, uh, sports facilities, are maintained through the support of the private sector and naming rights and, and official sponsorship. And we are quite happy to see that. And this is why we are encouraged by the, by the bid as it stands, is that we don't want this to be a burden for, for, for the city taxpayers. But at the end of the day, um, we need... If Hamilton is really going to stick to its vision of being a, the best place to raise a child and to age successfully, we need to put our money where our mouth is. You mentioned Calgary, Bill. Full disclosure, I'm in Calgary today um, on a family vacation, and my family and I are, are actually heading to Olympic Park uh, tomorrow. There you go. And um, I'm going to see firsthand, wow, the legacy, and this is going back um, 34 years, and we're, we're going to see facilities that are still used by the community, um, some of them have been repurposed, but some of them, like you say, are still training grounds for um, elite athletes. And we don't necessarily want to confine any uh, um, facility to elite athletes, but we want the community to be. We want school kids running on that indoor track. We have the uh, Hamilton Indoor Games that are running around that rickety track in, uh, in the First Ontario Centre. We want to have them have a... a, have a a nice indoor track facility that's used that one day and the rest of the winter used by other community groups from Hamilton and around the region and also by other sport groups because all sport groups engage in some kind of dry land training. This is something that amateur athletes would greatly benefit from. And again, this is why we are supporting Hamilton 2030. I know some of the critics, uh, and I know you've read the bid. Uh, you know they say, "Well, you know, they're going to some of these events that are going to be in other places. They're not all going to be in Hamilton," uh, which is really the nature of of, of international competitions. <laughs> you know, when the Winter Olympics were in Vancouver a few years ago, I mean Whistler and other communities were involved in that too, uh, simply because they may be existing facilities or, or things of this nature. Uh, and I know places like KW and other communities around here have been discussing Burlington certainly. 
uh, about being a part of that. I, I don't have a problem with that. I, I, you know, the more the merrier to, to spread this around to, and make it a, a Hamilton-centric, but, a, 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 you know, a, a, a greater Hamilton bid with a couple of our neighbors. Oh, absolutely. And we saw that in 2015. Um, unfortunately, I would argue that Hamilton was on the short end of that stick coming from a track and field perspective. And there's no need to revisit yeah. that history again. But I can tell you that this time around, you know, we would also embrace the regional element of these games on the understanding that track and field and in specific an indoor field house are anchored right here in Hamilton. Yeah, that uh, I think that's something that, that the, the bid committee is certainly aware of. And I think that's what they've talked about with uh, some of the other communities about what might be feasible and not feasible about this sort of thing. Uh, and I, it's it's a huge undertaking, and and I know that you know you're concerned about the youth sport because you guys do such an incredible job at the Olympic Club, uh, and and so many other groups around here that are helping that, and and you know we've seen the benefit of that too. I know I know that's it's not maybe something you can quantify, but look at the number of athletes and student athletes that have gone on to great things from this area because we have been able to to offer uh, training for these. Enhanced training means better performance, uh, which is something that I think you know this this community could really be using right now uh, to try to do this. There's some great athletes who've had huge international success that have come from this area. Uh, you know, we think of Joanne Millar and all the great sim swimming records she set back in those days. Uh, trained at the Jimmy Thompson Pool, which was a, a net benefit, of course, of the original games, you know, the, uh, the British Empire games way back in 1931. Uh, so there can be legacy ideas like that, and you can see people that can benefit immensely uh, from an athletic standpoint as well. And it's not even just the elite athletes. I mean, it is great. Uh, every few years we see an athlete like Miles Meisner daily come out of our club um, who, who's down at UCLA. And you'll, you'll be seeing a lot of him in the coming years on the international scene. But we also think about the thousands of kids that take part in amateur athletics and the smaller number of kids that do it at the club level. And a very small number of them uh, ever become elite athletes. But they learn life lessons um, and develop positive um, lifestyle uh, habits coming out of organized sport. And this is what we are all about in our club. But we just need the spaces and the places to do it. And we need them year around. So I, I want uh, my vision coming out of this, our vision coming out of these, uh, uh, the Commonwealth Games is a legacy where we have kids from all around the region um, flocking to an indoor track facility and continuing to flock to our outdoor facility, whether it's running with their club or competing at a school meet or, or doing the Canusa games. Um, sport makes for great people. And um, we, we can't emphasize enough the need for the, uh, the need we have locally for these types of facilities. And this is really what these games bids are about or what they, at least they ought to be about. So that's why we are, we're supporting and we're looking forward to a substantial facility legacy for the sport of track and field in Hamilton. Exactly, and and I know. Look, there's always I know there's people right now listening to this saying, "Well, that's not the, really the job of a city. They shouldn't be going after these sorts of things." And I, I'm not even going to engage in that, but I know there's some people on city council that still feel that way, uh, and, and they're against having the Grey Cup here. They're against having a championships, the world, you know, the Canadian Open, things like that. But there is a net economic benefit. I mean, even if you don't want to do it from the standpoint of of, of what you've just described here, the the, the, the that benefit to, to kids and, and to athletics. There's an, there's an economic upside to this. I mean, you know, even if this past December, I mean, we had the Grey Cup here in Hamilton. Because of COVID, it was a much smaller uh, situation than they had planned. But it still had a huge economic uptick for the city. 
I mean, people come here, they stay in hotels, they spend their money, they go to restaurants. Uh, and that's great for the for the local business types. Uh, the games themselves will bring that uh, to a certain extent, but the legacy items uh, will be able to, to facilitate an awful lot of these things too, where you can start having championships and tournaments and things of this nature uh, in this community. It's all part of the economic growth. And, and you see it, and I know an awful lot of other people see it, and thankfully a lot of people on city council see that there can be a long-term benefit to, to this kind of an investment. And right now, uh, this the, the majority of this and the, the heavy lifting is being done not by you know people that have their hand out to the city council saying, give us some money for this. It's the private sector. Yeah, absolutely. And to the economic benefit, I would add social benefit. We cannot oh, yeah, absolutely. estimate or uh, we can't speak enough about the social benefit of having infrastructure for amateur and youth sports. It's, and this is what this is why we are at the table. Um, I hope somebody I hope these games bring a huge economic benefit. Frankly, I hope some people get rich off of it. But that, that's not our concern <laughs> at the club. We want to see decent athletics facilities for the sport of track and field. And our immediate need is a competition-ready indoor facility. And this is what we are expecting as a legacy out of this bid. Yeah, and I know. I'm not going to ask you to comment on the politics, Richard. I know you didn't want to do that anyway. And I would put that on you. But, I mean, when I see comments, I saw one councillor saying, well, this just looks like a bunch of uh, people that are trying to get government money so they can line their own pockets and make a profit. Now, that's very unfair, and that's untrue. Quite frankly, the people in this bid committee, for the most part, they've got their money already. Thank you very much. And most of them started it right here in the Hamilton with their own businesses, and they've grown them. And you've got people like the, the Mercanti family and, and the Paletta group and, and so many other people that are behind this bid in such a big way. They're simply saying, look, it, we want to give something back to the community. And, and, they, and by the way, most of them are already doing it in different ways, but they feel this is going to be a long-term uh, benefit to the city as well. And, and thankfully, city council seems to be on side. Uh, the majority of them, of course, supported the, the memorandum of understanding. I guess we should finish off. We're almost done here. But there's a long way to go, as, as we know. You know. There's more negotiations to be had and, and things of this nature. Uh, but the support of city council uh, is, is a, a key part of this. And, and, and they're... they're promise right now to say, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll be, go to the table with you to, to the federal and provincial governments uh, and ask them to do the same sort of thing they've done for all, every other international bid, whether it's Calgary, Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto, Ottawa, anything else like that. So I, I'm feeling pretty optimistic about it, and I assume you are too. Yes, we are. But, um, but we, we will be at the table right till the this bid is either accepted with uh, or, or rejected with our consistent expectation that there be a substantial facility legacy. I mean, I get that um, there's concern about people looking for a reason to go to senior level governments for, for, for money, provided that money goes into um, social infrastructure or sorry, um, I should say capital infrastructure to the benefit of amateur athletics. I'm okay with that. I, for one, am okay with that. Listen, thanks so much for spending some time with us. Uh, enjoy the rest of your holiday in Calgary. And uh, I know we'll thanks. talk more about this down the road. Thanks, Rich. Thanks for having me, Bill. It's been a pleasure. You betcha. Rich Gelder, president of the Hamilton Olympic Club and a strong supporter of Hamilton's uh, Commonwealth Games bid. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.